Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I hope that you have been able to stay warm and dry this week because it has been cold and rainy. Fall is definitely here, and that's a reminder that winter is coming. I've also been reminded of that as just about every store that I go into. There are Christmas decorations everywhere. So Halloween stuff and Christmas stuff out at the same time is just an indication that winter is coming for Minnesotans. So I hope you're staying warm and dry. Well, if you're a member of Resurrection Church, I have just a few announcements I want to remind you of. The first is that this coming Wednesday on uh, the 18th, we have our pizza and praise gathering. But for this pizza and praise gathering, we also have a membership seminar for those who have recently joined Resurrection Church or for those who are interested in joining. So we'll all start out together eating pizza together. Um, but then when everyone else goes to prayer, I will go with the new members and prospective members, and we will look at some material together as we try to think about the doctrine of the church and how we should live and function as a church. Uh, We will do this for the October and the November Pizza and Praises. So if you have joined and have never been through this seminar, or if you've been through it a long time ago and would like to go through it again, you're welcome to come too. Um, But it's primarily directed for those who are interested in joining or who have recently joined our church. I also want to remind you that on Saturday, October 21, from 9 to 11 a.m., we have our all-church prayer gathering. For just two hours, we're going to gather and pray. Steve Aldridge, one of our pastors, is going to lead us in that time, and we are going to grow in the discipline of prayer together. We believe that prayer is a really important spiritual discipline. Not only is it something that's commanded, but we also believe that God actually hears our prayers and acts in response to them. So we want to be a church that continues to grow in the spiritual discipline and grace of praying. So I would encourage you to come to both of those events, our Pizza and Praise on Wednesday and our Prayer Day on October 21 from 9 to 11 a.m. Well, I want to tell you about a book. I just finished reading a book by Alan Noble called On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. Alan Noble is a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's the editor and founder of Christ in Pop Culture, and he's written a number of articles and a couple of books as well. But his most recent book on getting out of bed is one that I have been recommending to so many people, especially uh, for Minnesotans who are about to go into a cold season where getting out of bed just seems miserable sometimes. Of course, Noble is not talking to Minnesotans who don't want to get out of bed because it's cold and dreary out, but he's talking to anyone who's experiencing the kind of suffering that makes it hard to function in day-to-day ways and makes it hard to carry out their God-given responsibilities to themselves, to their community, and ultimately to God as an act of worship. I've been recommending this book because I found it extremely helpful. And because as I began to 
consider suffering in Romans as Paul introduces this new theme in Romans 5 through 8, I wanted to read a book about suffering. And Noble's book is one that I would recommend to anyone. If you live in Dakota County and you have a library card, you can actually get the audiobook for free through the app Hoopla. It's really short whether you're reading to it or listening to it. Noble wrote it for people who are going through suffering, so it's not very long. Even somebody who is struggling to get out of bed and just to get through the day um, would probably be able to read this book and find great help and comfort in it. I won't talk about everything in the book here, but I want to make you aware of the book. And as we jump into Romans 5 through 8 in the next seven weeks, I imagine that I'll be referencing it here and there. I certainly plan to reference it on Sunday as we begin our series in Romans again, in Romans chapter 5, where Paul talks about the fact that Christians who are saved, who are justified, even those Christians, which is every Christian, will experience suffering. And Paul is going to instruct us on how we ought to process and engage with and think about our suffering in light of our salvation, our salvation past, our salvation present, and ultimately our salvation future. So if you um, have had seasons of your life where you have experienced some form of mental suffering like anxiety or depression or other forms of suffering that were debilitating in some way, I commend Alan Noble's book on getting out of bed to you. If you have not really experienced that, I would propose that you probably know people who have experienced that and who are experiencing it. And by reading this book, you'll be able to better relate to them and understand a little bit more of what they're going through. And more so, you'll be equipped to be a faithful friend and fellow church member for those who are experiencing suffering. As I mentioned, we are about to begin our Roman series again. We had several weeks off here as we celebrated a baptism Sunday. Josh preached from Acts 2, so we thought about the meaning of baptism. Prior to that, Josh had picked up his Zechariah series, and he finished the book of Zechariah, so we were able to learn from that. But what that means is we had a break from Romans, and it's a little bit easy to get disconnected from everything that we were learning in Romans. So I wanted to avoid just giving a review sermon on Sunday. We really need to be able to jump back into it so that we we can get through Romans in a timely manner. But I wanted to help people catch up if they have forgotten or if they're jumping into the series midway by doing this podcast episode where I talk about sin and salvation in Romans, and in particular, sin and salvation in Romans 1 through 5. If if you would like to think about these things in much more depth, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. We've worked through Romans fairly slowly, faster than some. We all know of preachers who have gone through Romans in like five to ten years, but we're we're moving through it faster, but we're still we're still um, going into depth. So those sermons may be helpful, especially as we think about concepts like righteousness and justification and what those things mean, what what salvation is, what the gospel means. All of these ideas we've 
considered in Romans already. But in particular, we've thought about the nature of sin and the nature of salvation. So what I want to do in this podcast is just remind you of the three aspects of sin and salvation that we've already considered. Because when Paul starts Romans 5, he says, therefore, and every pastor loves saying this, but whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to figure out what the therefore is there for. It's pointing you backwards to everything that's been said. So what Paul is going to say in Romans 5 through 8 is growing out of the foundation that he's already laid in Romans 1 through 4. In this episode of our podcast, I just want to review that a little bit and to explain more deeply the meaning of Romans 5, 1, and 2 so that I don't feel like I need to do that on Sunday, tomorrow, when I preach the sermon. So basically what this is doing is taking what would be 25 minutes of the sermon um, and packaging it here so we can focus more intently on the theme of suffering and how Christians ought to think about it and respond to it, and of the confident hope that we have in God who is present with us in our suffering. Identified a threefold description that does accurately communicate what Paul is describing as the human sin problem matched with the threefold description of the salvation solution in Romans 1 through 4. And I want to propose now that in the opening verses of Romans 5, Paul maintains that conceptual paradigm. He uses differentiated terms, but they're corresponding in what they're communicating. So I've introduced these ideas again in earlier sermons, especially in Romans 3, and I'd point you there for a more full defense of them. But right now I want to connect them to the opening verses of Romans 5.1 when he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. And there you see, following this threefold description of salvation, he shifts to talk about affliction and suffering. But in Romans 1 through 3, especially, but in all of Romans, Paul asserts that all humankind are sinners. He makes clear that Jewish and non-Jewish people are in need of the salvation that can be found in Jesus the Messiah alone. Not through the law, not through self-effort, nothing else will bring somebody into right standing with God. Now, the term sin and salvation need careful definition. And in other places, in the sermons that I've already preached, I've defined salvation in this way. I've said the biblical authors use the term salvation to communicate rescue from pagan oppressors and release from captivity to sin restoration of divine blessing, and removal of divine judgment that's paired with a renewal of the covenant relationship between God and humanity. So there's both a removal of divine judgment and a renewal of covenantal relationship between God and his people. But what does Paul mean by sin? Fundamentally, sin appears to be a rebellion against God's authority and a refusal to worship him paired with ingratitude. Now, the term sin, I don't 
think communicates super well in our modern day. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to be soft on sin. I'm just saying that the way that contemporary people use the term sin is more positive than negative. So people will talk about chocolate, for example, being sinfully delicious. We use sin and sinful to describe something that's more of an indulgence that's not great for you, but it's something that's really delightful. And when that's the connotation of sin for a lot of people, I I wonder if the English word sin is no longer communicating what the biblical authors are trying to communicate with it. So maybe we need to talk about rebellion or evil or use another term. But either way, you know, most of our English translations are going to keep using the word sin. So we, I'm going to keep using it here. But what is sin? It's a rebellion against God's authority. It's refusal to worship him, to participate in his life that he's granted to us, paired with an ingratitude. And and often in our refusal to worship him, we don't stop worshiping. David Foster Wallace, one of my favorite authors, has a commencement speech called This is Water. It's now in print, but you can listen to it on YouTube. And, And he makes the case that nobody ever stops worshiping. We keep worshiping. We just make God's that are different than God, and we serve them in ways that maybe we wouldn't naturally think of as worship, but that's actually what we're doing. And and we're doing it all, as he would say, within the skull-sized kingdom of our own lives. Ultimately, we're, we're grabbing onto God's as we seek to serve ourselves. But Paul, when he talks about sin, he describes it more than he defines it. And he describes it in three ways, as captivity, complicity, and corruption. We need to hold these three aspects of the sin problem together, not only in order to give an accurate reflection of a Pauline description of sin and salvation, but also for navigating the nuances of a broken world, for pastoral counseling and personal discipleship, and even political theology. Um, I've talked about this in other sermons, so I won't go into depth here, but very often when you see people making an error when it comes to communicating the gospel, for for example, liberation theologians who say the gospel is just about bringing freedom to people. Well, the gospel is about freedom b- because sin is about captivity, but sin is about more than that, and the gospel does more than that. So we need to bring all of these together. So let's talk about this threefold sin problem, and it's matching threefold salvation solution. First, the sin problem includes captivity to sin. In some instances, sin should be understood as a cosmic power with an uppercase S. Paul refers to sin as an evil power at work in the world. And I believe that he's not merely personifying sin, but indicating that there is an anti-God power at work in the world. Beverly Gaventa has a number of articles drawing attention to sin as a cosmic power in Romans, though other commentators do as well. A fuller reading of Paul's letter justifies equating or at least associating the power sin with Satan. The sin problem starts with human captivity to sin. All humans are under the power of sin. For salvation to occur, we need to be brought under the power of grace. But as it is, Humans are captives to sin. 
They're slaves to the cruel taskmaster of sin. So what's needed? Redemption from sin's rule and transfer from the kingdom of sin into the kingdom of God's Son. This redemption provides for the release of captive souls so that they can experience the justifying grace of God. See especially Romans 3.24, where Paul indicates that redemption is logically prior to justification, or what I've called righteousification. The salvation solution starts with divine redemption from sin's power. And this is analogous to Egypt's redemption from Pharaoh's power and their captivity in Egypt. The defeat of Satan, frequently associated with Jesus' resurrection and designated as Christus victor by theologians, is an important part of this redemption. Second, the sin problem involves human complicity with the power sin. Although we humans are oppressed by sin, we are also complicit with it. When it comes to sin's captives, there are no innocent victims. Though truly oppressed by sin, humans participate in sin's rebellion against God. When we sin, we are living according to our own desires. In other words, though captive to sin, we are free with a dark freedom. And as free moral agents, We are responsible for our complicity in sin. Because we are responsible, God has the right to pronounce us guilty and to repay us according to our deeds, as Paul indicates in Romans 2.6. So what is needed as the solution for our complicity in sin? What is needed is divine forgiveness. In particular, sinful humans need a declaration of justification or pardon. In his mercy, God has passed over sin, but he does not let the guilty go unpunished. Instead, God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice so that he would be just and able to justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Third, the sin problem includes the corruption of the human person. Complicity in sin results in our corruption. Here, connections to the original image of God as defaced or marred are often employed. I'm slightly hesitant to utilize that language, but we can say that humans are intended to participate in the glory and likeness of God. Yet, instead of being defined by the glory of God and participating in it, humans, through their participation in sin, are defined by the corruption of sin. For that reason, Paul writes, for all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Now, I made the case in an earlier sermon that the traditional rendering of this popular verse, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, could wrongly equate the glory of God with heaven or something like that. That equation portrays a solution or a situation in which humans are trying to, you know, their hardest just to get to heaven, but they keep falling short of their requirements. Yet, Paul makes clear that no one seeks God. No one is running toward him. Everyone is running away from him in rebellion. So I think it's better to understand, in this case, the glory of God as a human participation in God's glory. Now, I haven't finished the details of her study, but there's a lady named Haley Gorenson Jacob who advocated Something, something similar in a book called Conform to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Romans. It's a little bit of a thick book, and, but I think she's making the same point I am. Uh, participation in sin is a failure to participate in the glory of God. 
That failure produces a glory lack. That's what the corruption ultimately is. Now, another guy named Matthew Bates addresses what he calls the glory cycle in his book, Why the Gospel, in a, in a way that's really compatible with what I'm arguing here. Um, if you're interested in more of what Bates is trying to say, I did a interview with him on this podcast, and you can find that episode. So what's needed to compensate for our lack of glory and to solve our corruption through complicity and sin? What is needed is moral transformation that eventuates in glorification. Now, in multiple sermons, I've discussed the difficulty of translating the Greek word word group that is related to what's translated as righteousness or justification. It's the same Greek word. Um, context determines if it means righteous or just. And, and it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to know how it should be rendered. So the same underlying Greek words can be rendered, uh, rendered either as just in the associated word group justified or justification, or as righteous. Now, the problem is that we lack an extensive word group for righteous language. We don't have terms in our vocabulary like righteousified or righteousification, and it would be really helpful if we did. Um, But I think at times Paul uses this term that's often translated as justification more to communicate righteousification, the actual moral transformation in which righteousness is imparted and increased through faith. Here, the answer to the lack of glory problem is righteousification that eventuates in glorification. One scholar who helpfully deals with the righteous just issue is Michael Gorman in his Romans commentary and other writings. I understand that scholars are afraid of collapsing the theological category of sanctification into justification in its forensic or legal sense, Um, but I I think sometimes we need to read righteousification instead of justification and see it as the start of the moral transformation that brings about a renewal of the glory of God that's been corrupted through our participation in sin. Now, as we have seen already, Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection provide what is necessary for the sin problem, um, redemption pardon and transformation, or we could say redemption, reconciliation, and renewal. We could use three R's there. I I want to propose that Paul continues to work with these three categories in Romans 5, even though he's using somewhat different language to describe the same realities. So Paul reminds his readers of their justification or their righteousification by faith in Romans 5.1. And I believe that Paul uses the term justified or righteousified in Romans 5.1 in a less technical way and more as just a general term to refer to the entire salvation event made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. He then describes three things that are true for the one who has salvation through faith in Jesus. First, the one who has received the saving benefits of Jesus' sacrificial death is at peace with God. The peace is an objective reality rather than an existential one. Here, the peace of God is not the experience of peace or calm or serenity that exceeds understanding, but the reconciling peace granted to God's enemies 
with the result that they become his friends. And Paul elaborates this on this more in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5. This peace corresponds to the forgiveness or pardon that's granted by God for their complicity in sin, because our participation in sin results in our alienation from God. But through Christ, we have been reconciled. We now have peace with God. Second, Paul writes that the one who has received the saving benefits of Jesus' sacrificial death now stands in grace and has free access to it. The picture of grace as a realm or a location is unusual for Paul, but it, rem- it, it seems to be another way of saying that the believer is under grace, the phrasing that Paul uses in Romans 6.14, in contrast to being under the law, which has been hijacked by the power of sin. In other words, Jesus' death transfers the one with faith from the realm of sin to the realm of grace, out of captivity to sin, and into the realm of the free access to God's redeeming grace. Third, the remaining sin problem is that of corruption. Now, earlier I indicated that corruption is essentially a matter of glory lack. Paul concludes the threefold description of salvation with boasting about or celebrating the hope of the glory of God. The hope of transformation, eventuating in glorification, is what is in view here. Now, this phrase, the hope of the glory of God, I used to think it meant hope of going to heaven, being in glory, or something like that. And it is true that believers do have hope of entering God's glorious presence at death, and they maintain the expectation of Christ's glorious return. But in view here is their participation in God's glory, making up for the glory lack that we've already considered. This interpretation is expressed well in the New Living Translation's rendering of Romans 5.2, where it states that we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory, to recovering the lack of glory described in Romans 3. This reading is confirmed as Paul continues to describe the transformation process in cruciform terms in verses 3 through 5. The one with faith will experience suffering, but the kind that leads to transformation, increased righteousness, and eventual glorification. When affliction is endured faithfully, there is a transformation of moral character as a result of that testing. As the Christian Standard Bible puts it, Faithful endurance of affliction produces proven character. And as the believer recognizes the transformative power of God through suffering that brings about one degree of glory to another, hope in final glorification is then strengthened. The hope of the glory of God is surely a confident expectation of full participation in God's glory. Rather than exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, as Paul described in Romans 1, now the image of the mortal man, Adam, is renewed with the result that the believer now resembles God through a participation in his glory. Michael Gorman creatively describes this pattern of suffering, followed by glory, as resurrectional cruciformity and transformational participation in the life of Christ in his book, Participating in Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2 provides a nice connection point back to the sin problem and salvation solution previously articulated in Romans 1-4. through However, 
Paul broadens the salvation terminology, allowing him to reassure Christians who are facing suffering that their afflictions are not proof of the absence of God's salvific work. Instead, suffering is a means through which they will become full participation, full participants in that salvation. God is interested in bringing about complete redemption for his people, yet he does so by leading them in the path of Christ who experienced affliction before exaltation, who experienced suffering before glory. What is more, believers are assured of God's love and the transformative purpose of suffering through Paul's reminder of their reception of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus' own suffering as the decisive display of God's love. Every aspect of our deepest problem, sin, has been dealt with through Jesus' sacrificial death. Because of that reality, our present afflictions have been completely transformed. No longer are we in danger of God's wrath. On the contrary, God meets us in our suffering by pouring out his love in the Holy Spirit. And when we lack any sense of the Spirit's participation with us in our affliction, when we lack that subjective assurance from God, we maintain the objective proof of God's love for us even in our suffering. And that the objective proof of God's love is that Christ died for us while we were still afflicted by sin, while we were still ungodly. And if Christ died for us when we were sinners and when we were still God's enemies, how much more will he ensure that we receive God's love and persevering power now that we are his friends? Well, I hope this review of sin and salvation in Romans will help set us up well for investigating this theme of the suffering of the righteous in Romans 5, 1 through 11 this coming Sunday. Um, If you have not been part of our Roman series, I would encourage you to go back, catch back up, and to begin reading Romans through again as we dive back into the series. For those who are regular attenders at our church, I would just encourage you to be reading through Romans 5 through 8 at least once a week for the next seven weeks so that you can be prepared to see this whole unit together. And then I'll do my best in the sermons to also show how it's connected to what goes before it in Romans 1 through 4 and how it prepares the way for what Paul is going to say in Romans 9 through 16. Finally, I want to remind you that in our adult Bible class, I'm teaching through Tim Keller's book, Forgive. This book has been really helpful for me as I've tried to grow in the grace of forgiveness, both in receiving and affirming God's forgiveness of me and in granting that forgiveness to others. We have just a few weeks left in that class, but I'd encourage you if you don't come to Bible class regularly to make an effort to be there. In these closing weeks, Keller hits very practical issues as it relates to forgiveness. Tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about receiving God's forgiveness, um, what it looks like to truly repent and to really receive God's forgiveness, because God's forgiveness is both the inspiration and the model for our forgiveness of others. If you have questions about anything that you've heard here, you're welcome to email me at aaron at clbcmn.org. If you would like a written edition of the material I discussed in this podcast, I've posted that and I could share that with you. Just let me know. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. It is our aim to glorify God, to grow as followers of Christ together, 
and to go into our communities, serving our neighbors and sharing the good news about King Jesus. We invite you to join us in this mission. To learn more, you can go to resurrectionmn.org or you can just drop by 